Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor. And I'm your co-host, John Micton. Join us every two weeks for conversations with international school leaders, educators, and innovators who are working and engaging in the world of international school education. And finally, just to say a huge thanks to our valued partner, Faria Education Group. We'll jump back in later in the podcast to give you some more information about Faria Education Group. Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your co-host, John Micton, and uh, really nice to be back again. And so excited because Dan is with us. Hi, Dan. Welcome yeah, back. Hi John. It's, yeah, we've done a couple of individual episodes, didn't we? I spoke to Ben Rouse, and then you did a few by yourself. So it's good to be back together again. Yeah, and you were in Bahrain. How was that? It was great. I was in Bahrain for four months. With my took my family. I've got young children. Um, as you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I could actually live. I really enjoyed Bahrain. It's, it's, it's a funny place. You wouldn't think it would be a great place to live. But actually, I met a lot of people there who were nearing retirement age who, who were going to stay in Bahrain. You know, it's an island, you know, in, in the Arabian Gulf. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a really livable place. Really, really great transport connections as well. You know, you're halfway between Asia and Europe. And really, I was going to Saudi Arabia quite a lot and to UAE and stuff. So it was, it was really good to get around. And compared to your time in Abu Dhabi, very different? Yeah, well, we were in Dubai, not Abu Dhabi, but um, completely different. Like, we were, we were planning on staying in Bahrain and then going back to Dubai, actually, because I had a lot going on there. But it's, it's so much, for me, like, Dubai is such a big city. You know, it's a huge, it's like London, you know, but in, in the Middle East. Um, and with a lot of, you know, very, I don't know, the, the people are different in Dubai. Let's just say that, you know, there's a very, like, showy kind of, you know, uh, way. Uh, Bahrain is like going back to the 1980s or something. It's like stepping back in time. It's just very relaxing, very um, people from all over, you know, a lot of, lot of Africans, a lot of Europeans, people from every Middle Eastern country. So it, it was cool. And it's very liberal, you know, they, they have bars and re restaurants and stuff. It was, it was, oh, that's unusual. Place. Yeah. 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 Well, it's so interesting talking about transitions because today both of our guests, uh, Ashley and Kelly, who are here, and thank you so much for joining us. We're going to kind of talk about transitions as educators. So Ashley and Kelly will introduce themselves, but they've been uh, transitioned as international school educators from Europe to Asia. And Kelly's actually going to another Asian school. And we just thought it'd be interesting to hear from teachers that are moving around the world, uh, going from one culture to the other, and kind of what it's like to be recruiting, etc. So uh, say no more. I'll let Ashley and Kelly introduce yourselves. Ashley. And now we'd like to say a few words from our valued partner and sponsor, Faria Education Group. Faria Education Group has been with you through thick and thin helping international schools minimize headaches and easing transitions. Whether through paperless admissions with Open Apply, curriculum first learning with ManageBack, or school to home management with SchoolsBuddy, Faria has been your partner. What's more, Faria has been expanding with additional services, including professional development for international school educators. MiniPD is a professional learning platform by practitioners for practitioners. With a global community of learners and coaches, MiniPD makes the learning experience more personal, flexible, and equitable. Looking for a PD solution for your school or something for yourself? Sign up for individualized coaching and enjoy a 10% discount using the code ISPODCAST. Head over to app.minipd.com. That's app.minipd.com to book your personal learning coach today. 
Mini PD embracing the learner in every educator. Yes, hi, I'm Ashley. I am currently in my first year at Saigon South International School as a grade three homeroom teacher. I moved from Luxembourg where I taught for five years and that's where I got to meet John. Great, welcome Ashley, so nice to have you. Kelly. Hi, I'm Kelly, and this is my second year at Saigon South International School in Ho Chi Minh City, and I am a middle school PE teacher um, and a personal development lead. And before Saigon South, I was in the, at the International School of Brussels, where I taught middle school PE for eight years. And in just a few weeks, I'll be starting to head to the International School of Bangkok, where I'll be the associate athletic director. Fantastic. So uh, two really interesting journeys here. And I think one of the things maybe, uh, Kelly, you started off, you came into Saigon South uh, pre-COVID. So maybe talk to us a bit about, you know, you're in Europe. What kind of incited you? You've been there eight years. Why Asia? And what were some of the things that, you know, you thought about that other people might want to consider? Sure. Yeah, we got recruited and, and made our decision pre-COVID. We moved uh, during COVID and we went from quarantine to quarantine. So we, it was a very interesting and fun transition, um, as you can imagine. But yeah, we, my fiance and I had been in Belgium for a while and we absolutely loved it. And um, we knew Europe was a place that we could stay forever if we wanted to. Um, but that wasn't why we got into international education. Um, we wanted we want to work at different schools. We wanted to experience different cultures, um, be at different types of schools with different um, curriculum, different student populations, you know, different things to consider. Um, and so we um, decided that it was our time to go and try to try somewhere new. And so um, that the year 2020 was the year that we chose to start looking or 2019, I guess, at the time. Um, and we actually thought we were going to go to Africa. Um, and so our, a lot of our focus was in Africa and it was actually at the fair in Dubai, we, uh, in-person fair, that we um, decided to just continue to scan and see what other schools were there. And we ran across, I got South International School um, and it just was a really great fit for us. And so it was really great for us at that live fair to have the opportunity to interact with other schools that we weren't expecting to um, and kind of let the journey take us where it needed to be. Kelly, could you walk us through with the recruiting process? Like, what are the names of these fairs, if you know the websites? And uh, obviously, we know, but it'd be, be great because a lot of people maybe they're working in the US or the UK, they haven't gone to one of these fairs. Could, could you take a step back and, like, say, how, how does the international school recruitment process work? What, where are the fairs and what areas do they recruit for? Of course, yeah. So the recruiting process, I think, if, you, if you're thinking of going somewhere, you kind of need to start in the summertime to get your CV and everything ready because the fairs open as early now as... October. So, um, so some other year before places. you're saying summer. If you want to work in summer 2024, you start looking summer 2023. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or you start getting your things organized, I guess. Um, and so for us, the, the fair we attended was the GRC fair. Um, yeah. That one was held in Dubai. And the reason we attended that one was it was the only fair that was actually happening before our date that we needed to tell our school by. And we were really hoping to have jobs secured for the next year um, prior to making it, prior to letting our school know we wouldn't be returning. Yeah. Um, so that was the earliest fair there. We were also part of the search associates, um, uh, you know, program. And um, we had been signed up for those fairs in case we also needed to go. So those are fairs that happen all over the world. I know they have one in London, they have them in Boston, in Bangkok, also in Dubai. 
um, that happen at slightly different times and, and have slightly different focuses depending on where you think you want to go in the world. Um, yeah. And so those were the two that we mainly use. And then this time around, when we were looking for our next posting, we were using Troll as well. Sure. And the, do they have a fair as well? I'm not familiar with that. They have, they had virtual fairs this virtual year. Fairs, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure if they normally would have an in-person fair, but I, I assume they, they might as well. They're more European um, based, but their outreach is further than Europe, but a lot of so European schools. Can you walk us through like Dubai? Like, what's it like? Like, do you, do you, are you, they, they've got something online to get in touch with the schools beforehand? I and mean, can you walk around and just meet schools? Like, like what's it like the fair? Like what's, how did it go down? Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Well, I found them a lot of fun. They're also stressful and overwhelming, but I loved it. <laughs> um, you, you, so most of the schools we had been in contact prior, um, you are on a database. You can start to communicate. Schools can see your resume. Um, you can see the school's profile and you can reach out and they can reach out. Um, and then you, through the inner, we started to have interviews via Zoom at the time, pre-Google Meet, pre-Zoom, um, via Skype, sorry. And um so by the time we went to the fair, we had seven or eight schools that we already knew we were planning to meet with. So we had set those up ahead of time. However, the day of the fair, the fair opening, all of the schools in, atten in attendance had set up within a conference room at a hotel. Um, and you, they had a board with what list, uh, job opportunities were available at their school and where their school was and had representatives from their school. So um, a lot of people also organize their first interviews with a school out on the spot at the fair as well. So a little bit of both could happen. Great. Uh, yeah, that's excellent. Thank you for that really detailed. I think it's so important for people to understand that. Now, Ashley, you were in a different context because you didn't go to a life fair because it was in the midst of COVID. So maybe talk to us a bit about if you can't go to a life fair, what was the process like? What were some things that you had to grapple with uh, you know, Kelly got to go and see people and she was thinking kind of Africa and she ended up in Vietnam, but she was in the fair and that kind of fluidity occurred kind of spontaneously. But you here, you're, you're in Europe, you're recruiting and there's no fair. What Walk us through the steps that you had to engage with. Yeah, like Dan was saying, I got my search associates profile ready, started to get it ready in summer of 2020 so I could start recruiting that fall in uh, January as well, because I knew the big London search associates job fair was usually in January, but it would be virtual. And I believe what they did was instead of having the big fair in London and the big fair in Bangkok, they did two virtual weekends. So they extended the length of the fair and um, you, you basically registered online and you, you know, requested interviews and also had invitations for interviews. And, you know, what's nice is with search associates, they do fairs, but they also have opportunities to see current job openings all the time. So I could start looking, you know, as soon as I had my profile, what was there and what was coming up. And then it got time uh, to get closer to the fair and certain schools were participating and you knew who was going to be there. And then you got to see specific jobs that were open. And so, um, yeah, I wasn't necessarily shooting for Asia, but seeing in the time we were in with COVID and how, um, 
there's lots of Asian schools with lots of openings. It kind of really opened my mind more to getting to a, a different area of the world and how that might be actually be a little bit more exciting and kind of help me grow even more. And so, um, you know, things were starting to look that way where most of my interviews were with schools in Asia and, um, you know, Saigon South just happened to have that good, you know, you get that feeling sometimes with certain things, you have that gut feeling and, and luckily it was, it was mutual and just took a leap and came during COVID and it's been a whirlwind ever since. <laughs> I can only can I, imagine. Can I just, just on the, sorry, John. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Kelly, um, just to finish off the recruiting thing, like you mentioned that your fiance, like how, how did you find it? Obviously, a lot of people are teaching couples. How did you find it, both of you getting a position? Did you, did, you always try, did you always try the same school or did you just try the same city? Or did you say if one of us got a position in one city, then the other one will try and get a position? Or did you say one of us is going to lead and the other one's going to follow? Like, what, what, was, your, what was your strategy there? Yeah, it is a strategy. It was a bit of a game. Um, and my fiance is a math teacher, so he loves those types of strategies. Um, <laughs> we actually, since we were going before the fa before we told our school, we knew that we had kind of, uh, for that fair, we, we were going with the strategy. It has to be a, a good fit for both of us. Um, and by a good fit, meaning our number one choice of what we wanted to teach, um, or we would continue looking at, at other fairs. And so we weren't, and because we were, you know, so happy at the school we were at, we said, you know, if we really find nothing and it doesn't happen, we were in that fortunate situation where we, we could stay. Um, yeah. So for us, we both, we only applied to schools where there were positions for both of us. Um, however, we both can teach a range of, of age, age ranges. So he can do middle school and high school. I can do classroom, elementary school and middle school or elementary school PE. Um, so we, we, applied to a variety, but our top choices that we kind of pursued were ones that were, again, those the fit for both of us for what we both wanted to teach. Um, and the year we applied for a number of schools, we did just, they just happened to have the math PE combo, um, which we weren't sure if that would be a thing or not a thing. I mean, I think, um, but otherwise we were going to lead with him for math as that's um, a pretty coveted role for a lot of schools. So um, we were Definitely. happy to go with that, but it worked out for us that we tried to, we intentionally went in saying we wanted to keep um, both of us kind of having a priority and it worked out. But I think a lot of people, like you said, have to kind of make those choices um, depending on what they're, what jobs they're looking for. I mean, I think schools like John, John's had a lot more experience than this, but I think schools like teaching couples because there's a perception that they're more stable, they're more likely to, to, to stay and see out the contract. Is, is that your experience, John? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think that sometimes the, 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 the thinking, especially if you hire a family, they tend to stay longer. They're not going to be as transient and some schools want that consistency. So, yeah, I agree. Nothing against single people, Ashley, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, both of you and Ashley, maybe you can talk to this. Kelly also talked about this, is that you went in with nothing that defined as I want to teach in this country. Why did you go with that mindset? Why did, why did you not say, okay, these schools I'm targeting, and if they don't do it, I'm not going to go. You, you both were very open. And as you said, Ashley, kind of Asian schools, and suddenly you never thought of it, and there you are. What was some of your thinking behind that? And what might be some advice that you would want to give to educators considering this journey? I think the more open you keep yourself, then the more opportunities you have. You know, I think limiting to one country or one place, you know, isn't always the best idea when you're looking 
to move and to grow and to expand your experience. I think you have to always remain open. And for me, I didn't have a particular place in mind. I just wanted to find a good fit personally and professionally uh, for me to keep growing. And so Vietnam was not on my radar at all. Um, <laughs> but it, it became to be on my radar once I found this school that I gelled really well with. And so I put the priority for me as a good fit with the school. And, you know, that that comes hand in hand with figuring out, okay, where am I going? What is the culture like? How am I going to, you know, find my fit here? But what's great about any international school, I think, is that there's always that expat community. And no matter where you go, there's yep. people literally waiting for you yeah. to get them to help you, um, to help you find your way and to help you get to know the community and help you feel a part of the community. So that's a comfort in me, for me, in knowing that, um, that will always be there no matter where you go. Yeah, and, and I think what you're saying, and both Kelly alluded to this too, uh, is that I think you should never go choose a job based on the country. You should choose it based on the school. Definitely. And one of the things is that you spend more time in the school, especially as a, a current administrator. My hours are so long. I, I and you want to make sure that's a good fit. And I really like the way you echoed that both of you is that you were looking for the professional fit. And by coincidence, you both ended in Vietnam, but you maybe had different directions. And I can't stress enough, I think, for people considering this journey is you really have to spend time with the school. How does it match your own professional aspirations and your own interest in the curriculum? Kelly, you alluded different curriculum. So I, I really think that's so important. What were you, now that you came to Asia, what, what Kelly, let's start with you. What was the first big, like Asian school, European school? What is the first thing you were like, wow, that's different. Mm, that's a great question. Um, I would have, well, partially, I would have to say for me, the, the climate dictates a little bit because I'm a PE teacher. Um, and so being a PE teacher outside in Belgium versus being a PE teacher outside in <laughs> Vietnam, um, kids are not always pumped to be outside when it's, you know, 37 degrees and 80% humidity. Um, but that's not something I was used to. So one of the big challenges, first things I noticed was like, oh, wow, I'm going to have to, you know, adjust my teaching style or what I'm teaching. Um, at the time, we also had very strict COVID restrictions at school in terms of what we could teach. Um, and so I think that was for me was like, oh, this is a whole different game, right? This is a whole different um, environment of students that I'm teaching in and different facilities I'm teaching in and, and different students who have different interests in the in the things I am teaching as well. Um, and I think my first kind of week I was teaching outside and that was kind of like the, whoa, okay, here we go. Um, which is a great challenge, but it also took a while to get used to and figure out. Yeah, absolutely. Ashley, what about you? I definitely feel um, I interact much more with the local Vietnamese people here than I ever did with Luxembourgish people. We have a lot more local staff here at in our school than, you know, we had in Luxembourg. And so I feel very much more connected to the Vietnamese culture and understanding, you know, more about their way of life because I'm with them every day. And that's something that's very 
valuable, I think, when you move to a new country is getting to know that culture. And I've really had that opportunity to learn from them each and every day. You know, in my classroom, I, I have my own teaching assistant and she's Vietnamese and she helps me in more ways than one than just being, you know, in the classroom with my students. So that's a super great privilege and opportunity. I have a question for both of you. Um, do you find like, cause I've spent a lot of time in Asia uh, and we're actually probably going to spend the second half of this year. We're, I'm going to go with my family from September to the end of the year to Asia again. Like it seems to me working with a lot of Asian schools, there's a much more demanding culture in terms of parental expectations, in terms of, uh, um, they, do you, have you, have you noticed, could you say anything? I, it, obviously every Asian country is very different. I mean, I'd say the most extreme example is probably South Korea that I've seen in terms of, Every kid is, is working till 10 o'clock at night until they fall asleep on, on things. But how, have, you, have you found that, like the work ethic and the parental expectations, is it noticeably different? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. A lot of our students go to another school after our school. Yeah. Talk a bit about that, kind of how that came about for you, Ashley, or that realization. What were the, some evidences? And then Kelly, maybe also in your context. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there is a big push for um, success in a lot of Asian cultures. And also, you know, we have a big um, Korean population. And so a lot of my students will go to Korean school after school to keep up, you know, their Korean language or culture or, you know, things to support um, their, their home life as well. And, you know, just seeing them, I have one, you know, particular student who will bring in all these math problems he wants to show me from her after school school. And, um, the, the approaches to learning are very different. And so it's sometimes hard to find that bridge for our students and, and our approaches to learning at SSIS are a certain way, but sometimes they don't always match up with sort of the Asian way of thinking of, you know, what is learning and how do we do this and how do we approach this? And so, um, sometimes when you see work coming in from students, you're like, where did, where did that come from? You know, and you kind of have to talk it through and say, okay, well, let's, you know, let's bring it back to our conversations in class and how can we connect it from there? Uh, if that makes sense, Kelly, I'll let you kind of add on. Yeah, no, I think you said that really well, Ashley. I think I agree with, with how you put that. I think, um, in the middle school context as well, I think families start to see that as kind of that transition to high school and then high school's like, you know, full on time. Um, I, I was actually just talking to a parent who lives in, in my apartment complex. We were both walking our dogs and I asked what they were doing for the summer. Um, and her daughter's in seventh grade going into eighth grade. And she said, oh, we'll take a 10 day vacation. But then my daughter has to spend the rest of the summer getting ready for eighth grade. Um, and I'm, wow. you know, my, my idea of getting ready for eighth grade is go play, go swimming, go to the beach, you know, go have unwind. Um, but a lot of, a lot, especially at our school, a lot of our, our students are um, first generation international school students. A lot of their families, you know, don't necessarily even speak fluent English. They're just, they're working really hard in our host country to be able to send their children to our school um, to be able to open up new pathways for their future. And so the students and their families, I think there's a lot of pressure that, you know, the pathway for the, that they see for their future is often going out of Vietnam for university. Um, and so to be able to do that, there's a lot of pressure to, to get those scores up to do really well in academics. Um, so as a PE teacher, I also get to see, um, you know, I see, I look at, we talk about social, emotional, mental health as well. And so often talking to students who are really tired 
um, and asking why and learning about how late they're staying up and looking at that from a balanced perspective um, is, is something we have conversations about, but, um, and that PE is, is not necessarily the high stakes subject that they're really keen on their kids getting that straight A in. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's been an interesting perspective for me as well. Um, and I think our students are really want to do their families proud um, and their families really just want what's best for them, but they often see getting there by attending school after our school to ensure that they're continuing to build their academic success. So do you think compared to when you were in Europe, were there pressures? Was it different type of pressure from the parents? And now there's this new pressure, which I'm hearing is more academic focused. If you're a Korean, you want to maybe stay in parallel, know the Korean curriculum just in case you go back to a Korean school or whatever. What, what were some of the differences of the pressures that you had to navigate as an educator, Ashley? Um, I think a lot of it, yeah, I, th I think a lot of it you feel from the students because they feel from their parents. And me personally this year, I haven't had um, a lot of intense interactions with parents. And I think it's because it's the, the language barrier. And so you have that can to consider as well, you know, where I was in, when I was in Europe, we could pretty much communicate with all the parents fairly well. And now, you know, it definitely takes, you know, the help of my TA or, or somebody to, to, you know, get, be at those parent teacher conferences or translate the emails. And so um, it really comes down to that that bridge of the student and they're communicating a lot like kelly was saying they're tired you know I, I had a student say he was didn't have a great weekend because he had to go to his school on saturday and so you really you really feel it from the kids first and foremost and so you just kind of have to take that when you are um you know just thinking about them as as the whole child as you do and you're you know trying to create the best learning opportunities for them and um and consider that, you know, is, is definitely a, a different, a different approach than when I was in Luxembourg for sure. And Kelly, when you were in Belgium, your interactions were different with parents. Did you have, you feel you had different pressures? Um, well, I also think one of the things here for at least my two years here in Vietnam is we've had really limited parent interactions due to COVID. Um, and so even, you know, with, in terms of what our parent teacher conferences have looked like virtual versus in person um even just the, the the casual conversations you have with parents as you interact with them when they're on campus um so it just feels different right because you don't necessarily feel like you've established the same relationship that maybe you have from so i think there's just a piece of it that just your relationships with parents feel different than they have in the in when I was in Belgium, especially after being somewhere for eight years, um, it definitely feels different. I, for me, from the PE perspective, I don't necessarily feel I have a lot more pressure from the parents. I think for, for me, from the students, and it's a, a middle school wide and high school wide, you know, as soon as you assign something and as soon as you grade it, if the grade is not the grade they want, you will get an email within 30 seconds of you um, publishing the grade. And so there's there's more of the intensity, but it actually comes from the students, not from the parents. So I think it's the students care much more about what those numbers are showing up because their parents also can see it. But the communication is primarily coming from the students. So mm -hmm. it's, it, it is interesting because the students will say the pressure, 
you know, it's a, it's more of a family pressure, but when they're communicating with me in middle school, which I know is different than the way they might be able to communicate in elementary school, it's, it's coming from them as well. So um, it's an interesting interplay. Absolutely. Yeah, you made a good point, Kelly, with COVID. I haven't had any formal face-to-face -face communication with any of my parents this year. So wow. that's a very different, very different feel. Of course, we've had a couple Zoom conversations, but and I see them from a distance when I walk my kids to the turnstiles every day. But, you know, we have this system where parents are still not allowed on campus. And so I might see them from a distance or, you know, I maybe not have even seen them at all yet, which is very, a very different feeling too. I'm, cu I'm curious about, yeah, good transition. Talk about, you know, transition and moving in like in the COVID times, how can you talk through like what it's, well, first of all, what it was like with the quarantine what, what is the quarantine process in Vietnam when you did it? What did you have to do? And then how has it been afterwards? Have, have you been able to go out to socialize and do regular things or how restrictive is it? I'm, I'm curious to hear how it, how it is on the ground there. Well, funny enough, Kelly and I met in quarantine. We were right, right. across the hall from each other at the hotel. And yeah. So we would get the knock on the door that our meals were delivered outside and we'd open the door and we'd wave at each other and, <laughs> um, you know, and then we would Zoom later. So she was really like, you know, my first friend here straight from the airport to the hotel and we got connected in the hotel. And um, it was it was a rough go for a little bit. I got out of the hotel and it was... Two weeks. Talk us through the hotel. Was it two weeks? Yeah. Could you leave? Did you have a balcony? Was it, yeah. Like, did you choose uh, the hotel? Like, how does it work? Oh, gosh. Um, so I arrived at the airport and I had to put on a full hazmat suit and they had a whole big bus just for me. Um, and they I got to the hotel. They had... Um, a big spraying machine of sanitizer. They literally hosed me and my luggage down. Um, <laughs> I had to stand six feet away from the person that was checking me in. And then they put my bags on a trolley and said, okay, here's your card. Up you go, you know, whatever floor. And I got to my room, shut the door. And um, it was supposed to be for three weeks when, when we started, but while I think of five days into it or so Vietnam went back down to two weeks. And so uh, we didn't have a balcony at that hotel. Uh, we could crack our window. Um, we got a knock on the door three times a day for our meals. Um, you we had to go out. You didn't have like an hour to go to the pool or anything, nothing like, because like in Thailand, they had a system where you could go out for a certain times in a day and everything, you know? Yeah. And, and Kelly, when you arrived, you have a little, you've done a lot of quarantines by now, but when you arrived <laughs> the summer before, you had a little bit, you were at a different place, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah we so when i arrived we actually had to put our hazmat suits on in korea and fly from korea to ho chi minh city with hazmat suits leather uh plastic uh, latex gloves and goggles um on and then when we arrived in ho chi minh city we were put on a uh, some members of our school actually stayed at the hotel that ashley and i stayed at this summer um my fiance myself and someone else were put at a, a different location um, and it was about two hours away from Ho Chi Minh City, um, and they had a bus waiting for all of us on that, um, going there, and all the bus said was uh, COVID-19, and then they put <laughs> all of us, like 50 passengers, all just still in our full hazmat suits, and we, we I tell you, because at that time, there was, not, there was no COVID in Vietnam when we arrived, so we were like, you know, the people to be feared, and, and the number of people who were stopping and taking pictures of our bus, that probably looked terrifying because there's 57 people in hazmat suits and it, all it says is COVID-19 on it. 
um, <laughs> driving through the streets of, of Ho Chi Minh. So we, we made our way out to this little um, small village area. Um, and yeah, our hotel had um, did have a balcony that after a certain number of days, we were able to go um, out on the balcony for a little bit of time. We might may or may not have really been allowed to do it, but the hotel let us all do it. Um, and so we would get some fresh air. Um, but other than that, same as with, you know, what, what Ashley and I did this summer was three meals a day. At that point, we were getting COVID tested every three days. Um, so it was also a two-week quarantine, and every three days we'd get taken uh, to get a COVID test. Um, and then they always, like, take, you can't get released until they have the result from your first COVID test. So it's at an extra day. So you think it's a two-week quarantine, but it's really 15 days or 16 days. My first one was 16. Um, and then that one, the day I got out, the next day I started with my students. So that was my intro to Ho Chi Minh City. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and uh, I think that's something which is incredible is that so many educators transition from country to country with these different COVID restrictions and everything. And so, Ashley, you very likely did not meet your kids for a while because after the hotel, what happened? So you guys are in the hotel. You have your three weeks, as Kelly said, because of the testing. And then what was the next phase? Where did you go from there? The next phase was um, a temporary service department um, because there were so many restrictions, you couldn't travel around and go apartment shopping. Um, so, you know, they set up these longer stints at a, at a temporary service department so that, you know, you had a longer amount of time to choose where you were going to live. And I was there from July to October because October was when I was allowed out and about um, apart from going to the grocery store. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember getting pictures of my apartment I'm sitting in now from a realtor and we st still weren't allowed to like call a, a car or a taxi or, or really get out and about. So um, I got a friend to walk over with me, you know, like we're just going to go to the grocery store, but we're going to look at this apartment. And um, it worked out. You know, I, I made it out of my service department and got to my own apartment. Um, but there was I mean, it, it definitely after arriving, it got worse before it got better. Um, we got so far as to having a stay at home order where grocery stores were closed. We weren't allowed outside. And that was that was that was hard, obviously. Um, thank goodness our, our school really considered, you know, the new teachers, especially we, you know, didn't know our way around. We didn't know how to get water and food. And um, but, you know, we we figured it out. And um, along the way, we, you know, started school and, you know, new teacher training actually started in the hotel room for me, all the Zoom meetings and our first day of school was obviously virtual and we went until February and that's when I saw my kids face to face. So how, how did you get to know anyone in that time? Were, were, could you, were bars and restaurants open? Was there anything open or was it all closed? No, I think, um, I think grocery stores opened back up, uh, you know, a, a few weeks in maybe September, Kelly, and then October was a mm -hmm. few restaurants. Um, uh, Kelly, do you remember when we went to Saigon Craft and we, they said, oh, oh you, you guys are family. 
So we were yeah. kind of they weren't allowed to have customers yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so Ashley, like you going by, by yourself, like how were you just getting to know people, your colleagues and stuff on Zoom? Were you just? Cause mm-hmm. I, I guess you couldn't socialize for quite a few months then. That's all. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, and I also met another couple at school. They were living just a street over, and. Um, I would sneak out and go over to their house and use their oven to bake because that's one of my hobbies. And, um, and we would, we would also, you know, meet in the street and exchange, like I had a lot of vegetables and they, you know, she had a lot of lettuce and we would do these like war rationing, uh, trades out in the street, you know, after dark, um, <laughs> just, just, just to, you know, but we're, we're also in this sort of bubble community of Ho Chi Minh city, you know, we're in, in this district neighborhood that, um, is is sort of a bubble you know we're kelly like we're we're in a good community we're very safe and um people weren't really concerned about covid so much in our particular neighborhood as they were more downtown where people are living on top of each other yeah it's interesting (laughs) john curious john for you like because like now we've kind of come out of the other side of it in europe and i mean honestly for the last month in, in bahrain and in prague I, the only time I've ever seen anyone wear masks was on, on the airplane. And even then, like, we kind of had it over our chin just to make the effort of showing. Like, in Prague now, I, I can tell you honestly, I have not seen anything different than pre-COVID in, in, in 10 days. Like, nothing, not a single person's wearing a mask. Nothing is different. And honestly, I've almost, like, it, COVID was this huge drama. And now it's like I've almost forgotten about it. It was almost like, oh, used to be this yeah. COVID. Yeah. Do you find the same in Luxembourg? Absolutely. I was on a plane and I got on the plane with a mask and everybody looked at me like, where are you wearing a mask? And I was like, well, I thought you had to have masks on planes. And the lady was like, no, don't need a mask. (laughs) And I went back to Switzerland and yeah, it was like COVID had never happened. Uh, It's interesting because I I think, you know, uh, we forget that there are other areas of the world where Kelly and uh, Ashley are. There's still some restrictions and things and we forget that. There's still this kind of you know, shared experience, but at not in sync at different times. And, and it's just, I mean, uh, you know, it's amazing to think that you move to a new country and you end up not seeing your kids as an educator f- till February. I'm just curious, Kelly, you're a physical ed and uh, health teacher. So when you're online, that must have been a really interesting switch. You know, how do you engage? I know how challenging it is as a classroom teacher. I had the privilege of watching Ashley work here at Luxembourg during COVID and during the hybrid learning and, and the work and time were phenomenal. Just curious as a PE teacher, you're so dependent on equipment and maybe being outside. What happens when you're suddenly in this hotel room and you have to teach middle school kids? Yeah, you get a really unique opportunity to rethink everything you do, which is really um, like, you know, there's many moments where I wish COVID never happened and I would, you know, wish we could undo it all. And then there's many moments like this where I'm like, wow, I've grown and learned so much because of this that I wouldn't have had to or wouldn't have been forced out of my comfort zone and challenged to rethink things um, if it hadn't happened. So yeah, we kind of went to the drawing board and we're like, what do we do? You know, and so, and we couldn't, since people couldn't leave their homes, um, we couldn't, we couldn't even, you know, ask people to get certain equipment like a tennis ball or a jump rope. Um, we, so we really kind of reshifted to personal fitness focus, um, which we said, you know, that's really, everyone needs that. We know everyone from COVID has kind of been really sedentary. Um, and then we just thought of how many creative ways can we try to get kids excited about moving and moving their bodies and moving their bodies on Zoom 
with other people. Um, and so we did things like a virtual Olympics. Um, we did, you know, we, we brought in, we worked with a, an organization called Swerk It that has launched kind of a youth platform. Um, we've created a ton of units from scratch. Like we all kind of got together. And one of the things I've loved is the, the PE community and just like on Twitter, on Facebook, out, you know, in through personal networks um, has been fantastic about sharing what people are doing and what they've done that's worked well. Um, but even now we still have to offer virtual PE lessons. And so all year long, we've been creating new lessons with new learning objectives and goals for our students. Um, and it's really been a great professional challenge and learning different tools like tech tools. Um, you know, I learned Screencastify. I was putting, I was editing videos for Olympics and trying to make things more exciting for kids. And um, so it was a challenge. And I would say, if you ask the students, it probably wasn't always as exciting as being in person. Um, but they did tell me they liked a few things from it. So there's a few <laughs> things we have kept. Um, but yeah, it's, it was very difficult. And I think by around Christmas and December time, we were starting to lose our creati creativity and thinking, what can we do next to keep this different and exciting? Um, but it was also fun at times because it was really challenging professionally. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one thing you talked about, which I think uh, Dan definitely uh, can connect to, is this idea of how the community rallied together educators around the world. And I know Dan was giving out a lot of free PD. Uh, you basically said for weeks and months, you know, uh, they were giving free PD. I know that yeah, myself, exactly. I relied on that. And I'm sure Ashley, too, the professional learning community. And I think that's something, if anything, is the silver lining is how generous people were to support each other, especially educators from Asia, from Europe, from Africa, from South America, wherever in the world. Uh, that was something that I really tipped my hat off because I feel uh, organizations, and even Dan, that is an organization that of course uh, makes its income from you know uh, running conferences and providing PD. That generosity from companies like Apps Events, I think were really quite exemplary. And, and then you realize how rich of a professional learning network you have. And sometimes when you're live and in your building or in your bubble, you forget that. And I think to me, that really amplified it. I don't know, Dan, if you have some thoughts too about that. No, I mean, for me, it was just what else you do? You got to do something, you know, like the whole, all our, all our live training has just disappeared overnight. So it's like, well, got to do something to keep busy, you know? So we just did loads of online stuff, you know? But, you know, it's, it's great. I mean, it's funny if you take Apps Events as an organization, like, like we're very different post-COVID to pre-COVID. Like pre-COVID, we were just focused on professional learning, Google, Google training, summits, boot camps, custom training. Now we're doing all kinds of technical stuff. We're doing remote support. We're doing, we're doing a lot of stuff with IT admins, much more kind of day-to-day -day technical stuff. We do a lot more consulting for Google directly. Like half our work is just with Google. So like we have a, like a complete different organization post-COVID because like, all our business went to zero. You know? uh, all, all, all the summits, all the boot camps, all the custom, custom training with you know, leadership and, and stuff. And, and, and now it's coming back, but it's, it, it, I mean, it was good. It was a stressful time, but in the end, it was great. You know, I, think, I think, you know, it, it's hard for people that run businesses in, in, when, when these dramas happen. You know, I think everyone forgets that. It's when, you, when you don't have a, a fixed income, it, it, is, it is tough. But, you know, actually, it's been fine, really, you know, but, it, but you just got to get on with it, haven't you? There's nothing, you, you, can't, you can't complain about it. If you choose the life of an entrepreneur, you have to put up with it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, Ashley and Kelly, that since your experience with COVID and having worked in a non-COVID environment as educators in Europe and now in Asia, 
Has it changed you as an educator? Are you looking at this journey very differently through a different lens because of your experience? Maybe start with Ashley and over to Kelly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, how can it not change you? You know, I, I think about um, just, you know, approaching how we go about our day-to-day -day routines with each other. And, and I think back to, um, you know, being completely virtual with my students for so long. And then making that huge transition to starting physical school together. And, and we kept saying, oh, we're going back to school. But for me, I was like, I'm not really going back to school. I'm just starting school here for the first time with you guys. And it was um, it, it definitely puts a different perspective on how you, you know, handle your relationships with students. I mean, in some ways being virtual, I felt like in some aspects, I knew my students better because of our interactions and how different they were. Um, you know, I could, I saw their work every day way more than I maybe saw in the classroom because the only way I could see it was by, you know, going into Seesaw and clicking on it rather than, you know, just kind of overlooking what they're doing as they're doing it in the classroom. And so interacting with students and thinking about how you're giving feedback is something that I've really reflected on, especially in a virtual setting and how that feedback and timely feedback is so important, whether you're virtual or physical, but making that a routine for you and your students as you, you know, live out your day-to-day -day and just how you interact with each other is definitely kind of where it's, it's put my focus on a lot. Wow, that's so cool, especially this idea of feedback and, and really elevating the importance of that, because we often talk about it, but it sounds like, and, and you've just shared through your experience, it just really came in the forefront. Kelly, how about yourself, your own experience? Yeah, um, it also has definitely changed me. And, and actually, I'm going to echo similar to what Ashley said, because for me in PE, um, so much of my instruction, my feedback, my interactions with my students is direct, right? It's it's in the moment. It's when we're together. Um, and, you know, I'm not often assigning PE homework or things, you know, that they're submitting for me. Um, but one of the really great things that being virtual helped with was looking at what platforms we can use and how we can find really meaningful ways to give students feedback, even when we're in person. Um, because, you know, taking a video of how a student is throwing a ball but giving them access to that video and providing feedback or interaction with them online, you know, is now something that can be done that wouldn't necessarily have been on my radar pre-COVID. You know, we're thinking about, okay, what are, what are ways, or we do a lot with students doing personal social responsibility reflections um, that we do online now and that they can keep as, you know, versus paper that they now have kind of a portfolio of for them to carry with them through their middle school years that they can really look back and see how they've grown as a learner throughout the year and, and multiple years. Um, so I think for me too, that feedback piece has been really important and just rethinking the way that we also use technology in PE um, and use it, but also not just use it for an immediate piece of feedback, but also how can we capture it and how can we make it available both to student and to um, us? Like our, our parents were able to see more of their students learning in PE than ever before because they often were taking pictures or videos, um, which was a really fascinating thing. And it's a great thing I want to do, you know, or if I was staying in the classroom, would want to keep doing moving forward. Um, so I think for me, a big piece was also that and also co um, the collaboration that had to happen within my team 
um, was brought to a whole different level, um, which I, I thought also is something that I loved because we really had to troubleshoot and be vulnerable and work together. Um, and that's something that I think having a shared experience like that really helped change me and the way I you know, work with the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear how even in the adversity, as you explained your own journeys, being in that hotel room three knocks a day, that, you know, now as educators, you have engaged with the new uh, dispositions and new ways of moving forward, especially with this feedback uh, topic that you highlighted. I think that's just so uh, fa fantastic. I'm mindful of time, and I know uh, what would be really nice is I am sure there are many people listening here that are saying, oh, I would like to go to an international school now uh, or I would like to recruit. And uh, before we wrap up, it would just be nice to hear any little nuggets, any a little advice, a little like tweet. If it was a tweet, what would you want to say in, in a very short kind of sentence or two? Kelly, do you want to start? Sure. I'd say go for it, right? You regret the things that you don't do, right? You don't regret doing, continuing to do what you are doing. So if you're saying you have an interest in it, why not explore it? Um, and to, and to, along with that, explore the things we talked about of what are your priorities? What are you looking for in your professional environment? And be really clear on what are your non-negotiables and what are the things that you're willing to kind of go either way on um, and, and have those in your mind as you go into the recruiting process. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, my uh, gut reaction was the same. Just do it. If you're even halfway considering it, just do it. Um, ask a lot of questions along the way as you're making your decision. Um, you know, but my my good friend uh, Dania always asked me, you know, it, or told me, you can do anything for two years of your life. You know, usually these contracts are for two years. Just, just do it. You can always make a change later if you change your mind. Why not if you're even thinking about it? It's such a great opportunity. We as educators have so many opportunities at our fingertips, and it's incredible. And so you have to take advantage of that. Fascinating. Yeah, guys, a follow-up question. First of all, are either, have either of you guys checked out a website called internationalschoolreviews.com? It's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I've told John about it. It's, it's like $30 to join. And, it's, and no one has anything good to say about anything in there. You know, it's all negative. But what's really interesting you know, um, is like there's a whole debate about what are the tier one schools. You know, it's interesting how international schools have these tiers which are not officially defined anywhere, but everyone, everyone agrees there is a tiering system. You know, traditionally, what you would say is a tier one school is a traditional nonprofit, well-funded international school, very much like where you guys, uh, you know, I would say all the schools you worked with and, and the ones you're going to are in. I remember one of the first times I met John, John very grandly told me that he would never wanted to work for a, a for-profit school. He only wanted to work for a traditional international school. Are, are you two, because obviously you've, you've gone from and to them. Is that a conscious decision you made? Like, have you, did you look at the, the list of, of tier one schools on, on international school reviews and say, right, I want to focus on this type of school? Or was it just, we looking at all the schools? You know, I, I have, um, just by talking with other people in the teaching community, you know, the most people say, you know, choose a, a non-for-profit school. Yeah. That's just kind of what most people recommend. Um, and, you know, I know that there's opportunity, if, you know, I know you don't want to limit yourself, but 
Um, that's why it's important to know, like Kelly was saying, like, what are your non-negotiables and what, you know, what is important to you when you're working for a school? Um, but, you know, I haven't ever uh, used that website, but I think, you know, the international teaching community is actually much smaller than you realize in the further away you go and further uh, you move, the smaller the world gets. And so once you start making connections with other people, you can always, if you're wondering about a school, have a question about a school, you can always, always find somebody who has a connection to that school. And so you can, you can always find your way around. Interesting. Kelly. Yeah, I would agree. I think for us, we knew we wanted to be at a nonprofit school as well. So that was one of our non-negotiables just for aligning with some of our philosophies about our education and what we wanted to do. Um, With regards to the tier of the school, um, we were actually, I think, really open. One of the things that we were we both wanted was growth in our, you know, profession and growth in leadership. And so um, we knew that that might mean going to a different school with different needs or different opportunities for us. Um, And I think also realizing that at any school, whether it's, you know, a tier one school or a perceived different tier of a school, um, you can still grow and, and find those opportunities for the growth you need to get to a school where you want to go if you end up having a school at, like in mind or an area in mind. Um, yeah. Because I think there's always options out there or things out there. So you might end up at that tier one school, but not be able to make that vertical growth that you might be looking for and not have as many opportunities versus a, a smaller school or maybe less established school. You might have a lot more and you might grow more in that two year chunk than someone else at a different school. So I think um, we were open. Um, it has, you know, we end up both at tier one schools or perceived tier one schools at um, both places we've worked and we've, you know, found many advantages to it. But I think it shouldn't necessarily be a limiting factor to, for someone if they're open um, to just looking for somewhere where they could grow. Sure. Yeah, especially if you're just starting out um, as an international teacher, you know, that you can always grow and build from where you begin. And so, you know, just getting yourself out there, I think, is the most important thing. It's true. Absolutely. It's interesting because the whole profit against nonprofit. I, I, my opinion now, having having been to probably hundreds of schools, is that like, if you have like a great leadership team and great people to work for, it doesn't really matter what the school is. You can have a miserable time at a tier one school and an amazing time at a, a for profit school if you've got like good management and leadership there. You know? I think that's so true. Uh, Dan is it's about the teachers and the and the leadership team and you know what kind of culture of learning is created and if they're for profit they're for profit but you're right I I would only echo with you that I think you know being in the IT business usually uh, for profit schools there there's much more curation of budgets maybe and that that might be my own naive perception but uh, I I definitely like the way you said that Kelly is that it's about you know, what, where do you want to grow? And as Ashley said, get to know the school. Maybe the school you never heard of is an amazing school because nobody in your network knew about it. And they're incredible schools that are not tier one schools doing amazing things. Uh, and so I think that's really important to do your homework as you both uh, so uh, guided us through this. I just want to thank both Ashley and Kelly for your time and just the wonderful, rich narrative that you shared with us uh, unbelievable, you know, moving through COVID, uh, being locked in a room and everything. It's just the resilience and, that you both uh, just exude is, is 
really uh, amazing. And really hats off to both of you and to all your colleagues and everybody that's still in this situation juggling between COVID and non-COVID and the challenges that come with that as an educator. So we so appreciate you taking the time. I know it's late in Saigon. We're just about to go for evening drinks, Dan and I. But uh, anyway, mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time. And I just want to remind the audience that we have show notes. Kelly and Ashley added their bios and some links, and you can follow them on Twitter. Uh, definitely follow them. They're very active professionally in their areas of focus, so you might want to be following them and learning from them too. Uh, Dan, we get to see each other very soon. Yeah, we do. I look forward to Yeah, <laughs> very much so. And uh, thank you both. I don't know if you have any parting words, but uh, thank you again. Yeah, thank you both very much. And, um, you know, Kelly and I have gotten to be good friends and we are, you know, even though she's moving on, we've made this friendship that's going to last a long time. And so that's another piece to take away from this international setting, which is awesome. For sure. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having these Great conversations, too, with educators around the world. I think it's fantastic to open people's worlds up and, and hear from people in different areas. So thanks for inviting us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Be well, everybody. Thanks again.